0: much. It's a a pleasure to be here this morning, and I want to thank Pastor Paul for the opportunity to be here this morning and share with you. Uh, My wife, Catherine, is with me, and sometimes that's a rare thing when I get to speak because I'm speaking in other areas, and uh, she has a job. See, I don't. I just travel around the world, and so she has a job. If it wasn't for her staying here doing that job, I couldn't do what i do. And so a lot of times she's not with me, so it's a a pleasure to have my wife Catherine with me this morning. And also Mr. Bob Allen, who is one of our uh, advisory board members. We're glad that he could be here with us this morning as well, so I just want to recognize them. God's doing some amazing things around the world. Uh, I've been doing, I I pastored Baptist churches for almost 15 years. Uh, 14 years ago, roughly speaking, I started a ministry called Autumn Hope Ministries, which I operate right here out of Cookville. And I travel around the world. The first number of those years, I spent in East Africa, mainly. In East Africa, over the years, we uh, <clears throat> we did the basic missionary things. We planted churches. We did evangelism. We planted over three hundred churches in East Africa over those years. We trained pastors. We've seen. I quit counting, and I don't like to use numbers because everybody wants to throw their numbers out, and I don't know that numbers are always important. But I quit counting at 500,000 salvations because the Lord told me to. I was adding them up one day, and I hit that number. And he told me, he said, that's enough counting. He said, the only one that matters is the next one. And so I quit counting, so I have no idea where it's gone since then. I know there have been more. But a couple of years ago, God began to refocus us and and to show me some things that he had been putting in place over the years uh, that I had not even seen him doing. You know, God's good at that. He's good at putting people in our lives and putting things together in our lives. And then when the time comes, he illuminates that. And he shows us, hey, this is already in place for you. This is in place. Now I want you to to go and do it. So I'd like to start. Could we show that first video, the one uh, FK Dreams, I think is what I named it. It's just a little short video here.
1: Jasmine's parents dream of a dancer who will touch and encourage many with her musical expressions. David's parents dream that his love for dirt and tractors will grow and that one day he will build communities. Jasmine's parents dream she will travel the world opening her mind to limitless possibilities. Michael's parents dream their son will save lives and find cures for horrible diseases. But who will dream for the more than 200,000 children orphaned as slaves in the brickyards of Pakistan? They are forced to work long hours in the hot sun from an early age because of a debt their parents could not repay. Many of the young girls are sold as early as age eight to older men to be used as sex toys. Will you dream for them? And who will dream for the young boys of Lake Volta in Ghana? They are sold by their parents to local fishermen who force them to work long hours in extremely dangerous conditions. Many drown while trying to free tangled nets. Will you dream for them? Freedom's Keys, a rescue ministry of Autumn Hope is leading the fight for these children. We are restoring dreams by giving them a hope and a future. Together we can make a difference. One child at a time. Will you help? Will you dream for a child who has no dreams?
0: I want you to turn with me this morning, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. I want to read just the first three verses. I'm going to read these from the New Living Translation. Normally, uh, it's not a translation that I use when I'm preaching, but I think in this case it gives us a clearer understanding of what the the Scripture is trying to say to us. Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it it's an interesting thought isn't it remember those in prison as if you were there yourself remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies now verse 3 is the one I want to focus on for just a minute or two. Verse 3 literally in the in the Greek really says, remember those who are in bondage as though you were bound with them. Now, how many of you in here would agree that a slave is in bondage? And so the scripture is telling us this morning to remember those in bondage. What we don't realize today sitting in here, and we hear very little about it on the news or anywhere else is that in today's world there are more slaves than there have ever been at any one point in history. Depending on whose definition of a slave you go by and and who you listen to or whose survey you look at, you'll find that there are anywhere from 30 to 48 million slaves. So let's just take the middle of that and say 40 million. 40 million slaves in today's world And those same people who do these surveys quickly tell us that probably 30% of them are more are children. Many of them in forced labor situations. And what I want to do this morning is focus in on verse 3, and I want you to think about something. Do you feel the pain of those people? As if it were in your own body, the scripture said. You know, we're very good at, as Christians, we're very good at hearing and seeing missionary stories or even hearing and seeing things on TV or wherever. And we, we look at it and we think, man, that is terrible. But within 20 minutes, it's no longer on our mind. And we're going about our business and doing our thing and whatever it is we're normally doing. We really don't feel their pain, do we? But here's the question. I'm going to let you off the hook a little bit with that because the bottom line is how can we feel their pain if we don't know what they're feeling? If we don't know what they're going through in life, if we don't know what every day is like for them, how can we feel their pain? This morning, I'm going to share with you about two different areas of the world. There are many others. But both of these areas that I'm going to share with you, if you look at any of the Here again, you do a little internet research and you look at some of the list of slavery by country and who has the most. You'll find that these two countries, one of them is always in the top five, usually number two, three, somewhere along in there. The other one will be in the top ten. And these are two countries that God has opened the door for us as Autumn Hope Ministries to carry this project we call Freedom's Keys into and try to make a difference in the lives of some of these people. I want to I share with you, first of all, what your life would be like if you were a Christian today in the nation of Pakistan. Now, we hear a lot about Pakistan on the news. You all know probably that Pakistan is an Islamic republic. The, the statistics say that 99% of Pakistan is, uh, is Muslim. That's probably not true. It's probably more like 97, 96, because I've seen it change over the last few years. But still, it's a vast majority of Muslims. Now, under the constitution of the nation of Pakistan, (coughs) slavery is illegal. You can't do it. But also under the constitution of Pakistan, Sharia law, the Muslim law, is allowed. And Sharia law does allow slaves to infidels. Now, to a Muslim, Christians are infidels. And so Christian slaves are quite allowable there. Now, it also has, Pakistan does, some of the harshest blasphemy laws in the world. In other words, if you go into Pakistan and you say something negative about Muhammad, you can be put to death very quickly. i give you the story of a man by the name of Faoud. Faoud was a Christian man. And he had a little storefront. The problem in Pakistan is when you become a Christian, one of two things is going to happen. Number one, you may lose your life within 24 hours. And it would be an honor for a Muslim to kill you. Number two, you are at least going to lose your job because all the jobs are controlled by the Muslims. Fa'ud became a Christian and he lost his job, but he had a little bit of money saved up. And so he he started a little... I don't even know if you could call it a store. It would be more like what we would look at at a yard sale table. It was a, just little stalls, one after the other. and He had a little stall there where he sold rope. He had anything from string to bigger rope, and he'd sell you rope. And so he was trying to make a living for his family. Well, on either side of Faud were Muslims who did the same thing. When you go into these third world countries, you'll notice that all the same kinds of businesses flock together. So you'll go down one street and you'll have all electrical parts. And one street you'll have all rope and your whatever. But Faud was selling rope and on each side of him he had a Muslim selling rope. Faoud's business was doing pretty well. And the, the, the Muslims on each side of him didn't like it. They kept giving him a hard time. They tried to steal his product. They tried to steal his customers, just everything they could do. So finally, one day, Faud goes to lunch. <coughs> and when he returns, there is a piece of cardboard hanging up over his, um, <coughs> his table there. And it had some writing on it in Arabic. Now, they don't speak Arabic in Pakistan. They speak Urdu. So he had no idea what this said. He just figured they had written some funny sign about him or something. He takes it down and he tears it up and he throws it into trash. What Fahud didn't know was what was written on that piece of cardboard was scripture, their scripture from the Koran. And if you defecate or if you tear up the Koran, it's just like blaspheming the prophet. Faoud was arrested. He was tried. And he was hung because he tore a piece of cardboard. Or I could tell you about a case that's been in the news here lately of a lady by the name of Asia Bibi. She's actually written a book for breaking the blasphemy law. She is, uh, within the next two weeks, her case is going before the Pakistani Supreme Court. And if they uphold it, she'll be put to death. Why? Because she gave a Muslim lady a cup of water. The lady was thirsty. She offered her a cup of water. The Muslim lady said, I can't take water from you. You're an infidel. Asia said, well, aren't we all human beings? And because she said that, she was comparing herself, an infidel, to a Muslim, and that's blaspheming the prophet. So if the court upholds this in two weeks, she'll be put to death. That's bad enough, but let me tell you what really happens. Many of these families can't afford to take care of their family. They lose their jobs. They, they, all they can do is try to find something to do, and many of them end up in trouble. You know, sooner or later, you're going to have a problem when you're like that. It might be something simple as a child being sick. It might be something as simple as a, a family member wanting to get married and you want to give your daughter the best to, you know, You know how those things in life come. And so what they'll ultimately do is they'll go out and they'll borrow money from one of the Muslims. And almost always in the middle part of Pakistan, it is the Muslim brickyard owners. You saw those in the video. All the bricks in in Pakistan are made by hand and then they're cooked in big kilns and uh, 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 they're all made by Christians. Because what happens is you borrow money from this Muslim and then you can't pay it back. The interest rate is exorbitant. It may only be a couple hundred dollars, but the interest rate is so high and you're not working and you can never pay the loan back. And so after a period of time, you have to go and work for this man on his kiln to pay back the loan. The problem is it's a no-win situation. Because when you go there, you're now his slave. You're a bonded servant. And you're, you have to do what he says when he says do it. And you also have to live there, and the conditions are absolutely deplorable. I mean, some of the worst poverty conditions in the world. And you have to live there, and you have to pay him to allow you to live in those conditions. So for whatever little bit of money he's paying you to make bricks, first you've got to pay for your living, you've got to pay for food, and then you've got to try to pay back the loan. There's nothing left. It, it, it never happens. And the conditions are so bad, and in the summertime, temperature is getting to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And these people, you saw the little girl making bricks there. As early as three and four years old, these children are out here making bricks in the hot sun. Why? Because the family has to make a certain quota of bricks in a day or they get nothing. And so they all have to go out and work. 120 degree temperatures, 14, 16 hours a day. And you may work up till five o'clock and you've just about got your quota and then you get a thunderstorm and it washes them all away. And you've lost everything for the day. In those kind of conditions, people don't last very long. They die early. And it leaves a lot of orphans. If you're 45 years old, pastor, in a brick kiln, you're an old man. You just don't live long in those conditions. So you've got all these orphans running around. And these orphans are now owned by the brick kiln owners. And they make them work. The community tries to take care of them. The Christian community there living and working tries when they can, but they don't have enough for themselves. You'll see these kids sleeping under wheelbarrows, sleeping under boards, whatever they can do. You'll see them out making bricks because if they don't make so many bricks a day, they get nothing to eat that night. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel their pain? Do you feel their pain in your life? body as if it were your own that's what the scripture said we should do wasn't it but you see it doesn't stop there let's say now you're that brickyard owner and as that brickyard owner you 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 come up on a day you know business owners get short on cash sometime too and so the brickyard owner comes up on a day and he needs to make some payments that he doesn't have so what does he do He goes and he picks out three, four, five, ever how many he needs to, of these young girls who are orphans in his brick kill that he owns. Usually ranging ages eight to twelve. I have seen them as early as six. And he'll take these girls and he'll literally sell them to get cash to run his business. And when he sells them, it's almost always to older Muslim men who will take them and marry them at the age of eight. Nine. Sexually, physically, verbally abused. Any kind of abuse you can think of, they go through it. After some number of years, he's tired of them. And he'll usually sell them off into the black market sex trade. They end up in Hong Kong, Singapore, Bangkok as prostitutes, just shells of human beings for the rest of their lives. Do you feel their pain? In your body. As if it were your own. But Let me make one thing real clear this morning. God loves Muslims. I don't care what you hear on the media. I don't care what you hear out of some radio programs. Even some of our pulpits. God loves Muslims. Jesus died just as much for them as he did you or me. And so we can't write them off just because they're not like us, just because they're this religion that is causing us a lot of problems. I understand that. We've got to be careful. We've got to be cautious. We've got to do all those things. But God loves Muslims so much so that He sent Jesus to die for them. Let me tell you a story this is how God works. About two years ago, a little over now, I was getting ready to head to Pakistan. And I got a phone call from the pastor that I partner with there. And he I could tell as soon as I answered the phone that he was a little bit nervous. And so he says, Yeah, <clears throat> I asked, his name's Rizwan. I said, Pastor Rizwan, what's wrong? He said, Well, he said, I just had something happen and it's really bothering me. I said, What'd you have happen? He said, Well. He said, I was walking down the street and a Muslim cleric came up to me, pointed at me in the face, said, I know you and I know what you do. That's not good news for a pastor in Pakistan. So, very nervously, Rizwan says, Well, how do you know me? What do you. And so the, the cleric pauses for a moment and he says, Because I've been having dreams. And in my dreams, Jesus came to see me and Jesus showed me your picture and he told me you'd be right here today and that I needed to come and see you right here today. This man traveled two hours to get where he was. (coughs) And he paused for another moment and then he said, and he also said, you've got an American coming and I need to talk to him. Now I'm nervous. (laughs) So the pastor said, will you meet with him? I said, yes, I'll meet with him. So... Two weeks later or so, three we were. I was there, and it just so happened on this particular trip I was there on my birthday. Normally, when I go into Pakistan, I have to stay low key, under the radar kind of thing. But this day, on my birthday, they wanted me to carry me out and show me. There's this huge fort, ancient fort. There it was built by the same emperor that built the Taj Mahal. Hadn't been kept up like that, but it's there. So we go to this place, and they kept telling me. I said, "When are we gonna meet with the cleric?" Well, later in the week. Later in the week. Well, they forgot to tell me. I had told them one one requirement. I want to meet him in a public place. So we get to the fort. We're walking around, and I round a corner, and here stands this Muslim cleric. They didn't tell me this is where I was going to meet him. But as we round the corner, he points his finger, and he says, I know you in broken English. I said, how do you know me? He said, Jesus showed me your picture. I wanted to ask him, was it on his refrigerator, but I didn't. Anyway, that's how God works. His name's Abraham, Ibrahim. Cleric Ibrahim talked to me a long time. He never made a conversion that I know of, but he's close. But what he's doing is he's helping us work with these people because he hates the idea of slavery. He's helping us get many of these young girls out of this place. I could never go in there and get them, but he can because they have to get his permission as their cleric before they can sell them. And so he is helping us go in and get these girls. I'm having to buy them. I'm literally buying them, we're taking them out, we're putting them in orphanages there in Pakistan right now, that's all I can do with them, but it gets them out of that mess and it gives them a hope because these orphanages are run by Christians. They're not built that way, but they're run by Christians out of the Scandinavian countries in Europe. So God has opened that door for us to help these children. We're also going to be starting some programs where we're educating some of these children. They don't get any education. They can't read. They can't write. We've got a a roving school that we're wanting to start, getting ready to start, and they're going to be able to get basic education, reading, writing, and arithmetic. We're also going to be teaching these, these, these fathers and then so forth minor jobs that they can do so they never have to borrow the money to start with. But all those things cost money. Ministry costs money, and we need your help. Now, I've got to move quickly, but I'm eating up my time quick. That's only one area. But I want to ask you, can you feel their pain in your body as if it were your own? Let me tell you about another place, a little different situation, but it's just as sad. That's the nation of Ghana, West Africa. There's a lake in Ghana called Lake Volta. It's the largest man-made lake in the world. 3,000 miles of shoreline on this man-made lake. Much of it is very remote. In many villages around the lake, you can only get to by boat. Ghana, the whole nation is very poor. Most of the people in Ghana, once you get outside the city, live on maybe 3 to $4 a week. Some people say 5 but it's not much. They have kids. They can't take care of them. They literally take their young boys because they can't take care of them and sell them to the fishermen on Lake Volta. You see, there's a huge fishing industry on Lake Volta catching tilapia. If you eat tilapia here, most of it's farm-raised now. used to come from Lake Volta, a lot of it. But they still supply a lot of northern Africa and the Middle East with this, this fish. And these fishermen will go and buy these young boys from these families who can't take care of them. You can get a young boy, eight years old or younger, four sometimes, $25, $25. Can you imagine a mother selling her child because she can't take care of it? Can you feel her pain in your body as if it were your own? They take these young boys to the lake, and they're forced to fish 14, 16 hours a day. You saw some of them on the video. 14, 16 hours a day at four years old. They fish with nets. If the nets get hung, they dive down to try to get... And it'd just be two little boys in a wooden canoe out on this big lake. The fisherman doesn't go with them, usually. And if the net gets hung, and they come back with a torn net, they get in trouble. So when the net gets hung, they dive in, they go down, they try to get it unhung. And many of these little boys drown. We had one just a couple months ago, four years old. that drowned. Estimates are there are as many as 10,000 of these little boys on this one lake on a given day. At night, many of them sleep in cages. Or at best, there'll be 15 or 20 of them in a little mud hut 10 foot square. They're animals. They're treated like animals. Now the one difference in Ghana is it is illegal. But the problem is there's so much corruption and the fishermen pay off the local authorities to look the other way. I've been working in Ghana since 2006. In 2006, the pastor that I partnered with in Ghana, his wife works for what we would call here, Children's Services. They've got a name two miles long for it, but it would be Children's Services. It's a national organization, rather than a county or a state. And she is a social worker, working, placing kids that are found. Only two years ago did I put two and two together when God started to show me this problem on Lake Volta that he had put her in place way before to get things done. We just got all of our paperwork through the government in Ghana. We're now officially a a non-profit corporation in Ghana. We can operate on the lake. We can do. We can build. We've already got land lined up. We're getting ready to build a home for it, a transitional home for these boys. And get them into places, get them some education, get them out of there. Now, can we help all 10,000? Probably not. But to everyone we touch, it'll make a difference. I could tell you about a young boy by the name of Lawe who spent 10 years on the lake. He finally got out. But he was just about to go back because he, he couldn't take care of himself. He didn't have an education. He didn't have anything. We've got Lawway right now in a, an adult education program and he's getting what we would call a GED. He's going to have a little hope. But for these other 10,000 boys running around out on the lake, what hope do they have if not us? But the question is, Do we feel their pain? Now, right now, you do. I can see it on your faces. I can see how this is touching your hearts. I can see you ladies just grimacing at what I'm talking about, giving up your son, your daughter having to live in that. I can see it on your face, but the question is, will it still be on your face two hours from now? There was a movie that came out back in, I think it was 2004 called Hotel Rwanda. may have seen the movie, some of you. Based on a true story, it happened during a, a time in Rwanda when uh, the Hutus rose up against the Tutsis, or the other way around. I get those two confused. But anyway, and one was literally committing genocide to the other. In four months, they said they killed over a half a million of them. And in the movie, it's the story of a hotel manager who uh, a group of uh, UN troops and others come into the, the hotel there to, for protection because it was walled. And there's a point in the movie where a photographer, a videographer, slips over the wall and he goes out and he gets some video footage of what's going on. Can you play the Hotel Rwanda clip for me? It's just a couple of minutes long. Watch this. listen carefully to what they say. Uh, The uh, air conditioner's on the blink. Is there any way you can have a
1: look at it? I'm just on a deadline. Thank you. Let me know when you get the satellite feed. Thanks, uh, Mr. Fleming. I brought you some tea as well, sir. Thank you, Paul. You're an oasis in the desert. The elements in the government and the army
0: are following the example of what happened to the Americans in Somalia. I think they intend to intimidate us, try to attack us, and um, hope that the West will pull all its troops out. Do you think they'll succeed? No, they won't. You're in service today. the outbreak of is shooting down of the
1: president's
0: plan. I'm responsible for the safety of this crew. What is this? Down the road, Fred. It's David. I've got incredible footage. It's a massacre. Dead bodies, machetes. If I get this through right away, can you make the evening news? Yeah. You have to lead with this.
1: I pointed you. You do a shot. You get a total double. See all of the tr- Excuse me, Mr. Douglas. Oh, listen, i sorry about it earlier if I'd known you were, you were in there, I wouldn't know. I am glad that you have shot this footage and that the world will see it. It is the only way we have a chance that people might intervene. Yeah, and if no one intervenes, it's still a good thing to show. How can they not intervene when they witness such atrocities? I think if people see this footage, they'll say, oh my God, that's horrible, and then go on eating their dinners.
0: How can they not intervene in such atrocities? I think they'll see this footage and say, oh my God, that's horrible, and then go on eating their dinners. And That's what we so often do, even as the church we live in the greatest nation in the world and on our worst day other nations can't even begin to compare all around the world today people are hurting people are in situations that are horrific now do you feel their pain as if it were your own in your own body. That's not me asking that question. That's the Word of God asking that question. In less than two weeks, on the 13th of October, I'll be flying out again. I'm heading for a week in Thailand and then uh, about eight or nine days in Pakistan. And we need to to do some things in Pakistan. We need to, to get some things set up better to get schooling started and the one thing that I haven't mentioned is that in Pakistan I also do open-air evangelistic meetings can you imagine that in Pakistan thousands show up there's a picture on my board out in the hallway there that you can look at on the bottom left one that we sponsored I wasn't actually there but I sponsored to help sponsor it for the Pakistanis 900,000 Pakistanis showed up to hear the good news of Jesus. And over half of them stood to accept Christ at the end. Now they may be slaves today, they may not be yet, I don't know. But I'll be doing meetings like that while I'm there as well this time. But I need your help, I can't do it alone. We're an independent ministry. We do what God has opened the doors for us to do. But I'm inviting you this morning to be a part of this with us. To help us touch these young girls who are being treated that way. To help us do things so that these parents may never get in that situation. To help these young boys who have been treated like animals. What I didn't tell you about Lawe was his brother was also a slave alongside him. One day... Lawway's brother didn't feel very good and, and couldn't do much. And the fisherman got mad, and he, right in front of Lawway, he throws his brother in the water. And every time the brother would come up, he'd hit him on the head with a paddle until he didn't come up anymore. And then he went and bought him another one. Please, don't forget what you've seen and heard this morning. and. Anytime anybody comes in and shares these, whether it's me or don't forget. Don't allow our blessings here in America to cloud your sight and mind of what our Christian brothers and sisters are going through in the rest of the world. Feel it in your body as if it were your own pain. Thank you, Pastor.